again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Elton John with John Lennon and I saw her standing there live from Madison Square Garden in November 1974 and that's because I've got Tony King here today on the Strange Brew. Tony has been at the heart of many of music's iconic moments from the past 60 years or so and he's here to tell me today about his incredible life so here's my chat with Tony. Hello, Tony. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. Uh, thank you for agreeing to speak with me. Pleasure. 
And also, congratulations on a, a fabulous book, uh, The Tastemaker. I mean, it is an essential addition to the history of uh, rock and pop music over the last 50 or 60 years. Oh, I'm glad you like it. I'm really glad. For someone like yourself, and I, I've seen all the people that you've spoken to over the years, and I'm very impressed, of course, and I'm very gratified that you you think it's a good read. It's really nice. Thank you. Have you always had the idea to capture your story and, and the stories of the artists? Never. I mean, for years and years, to be honest with you, people have been saying to me, are you going to write a book? Are you going to write a book? Are you going to write a book? And I kept saying, no, I, I can't. I, my stop answer was, I can't be bothered. <laughs> that shut the conversation down. Anyway, just before lockdown, I went to Lulu's for dinner because she's an old friend. And at the table was a man called Brian Cox, who's an actor who was in Succession. Yes. Plays the father. And he was talking to me and he was, I was telling him, so I must have been telling him a story or two or something. And he said to me, so when are you going to write a book? And Lulu went, don't even go there, Brian. It's just useless. He won't, he won't. So, and I said, oh, and I did the usual thing. And and then he finally, he, see, he leaned across the table at me and he wagged his finger at me and he said, you know what? He said, you owe it to people to write a book. He said, you've had such a wonderful experience and very few people have had your experiences and will benefit from reading about them. And he said, and you really should do it. And I, it did give me food for thought. Then within two weeks, we were all locked down because this was just in March, just before the actual thing and so during that time of course a lot of a lot of changes happened to me i got made redundant and all of a sudden i had all this time and then another person david williams knows me and he said to me so when are you going to write your book tony and i said no david and he said i'll tell you what i'll fix you up with my publisher and you have a conversation so i did harper collins unfortunately i didn't do the deal with them because to be honest, where they, they weren't offering enough. And so I, I got an agent and he went to Faber and Faber and that was it. And then they talked about ghostwriters. And the, my greatest success here is <laughs> the ghostwriter I've chose. Tom Bromley is a brilliant ghostwriter and I chose him because he is a writer and he teaches writing for Faber and Faber. And there was, and when I spoke to him, because they set me up with a couple of the Zoom meetings with a couple of potential people, and I just liked him enormously straight away. So that kicked it off. And really, to honestly, if it hadn't have been for Tom, it wouldn't have been the book it is, to be honest. I mean, it just he's taken all my sort of mad conversations and put them into and made a lovely story out of them. And that's a really good point because you open the book and then. You're there, it's 1974, Madison Square Garden, that legendary moment with John Lennon playing live with Elton John, a fantastic window in time, and, and it puts you in that place. Yeah, it was, a, well, it was a... I mean, even now, when you just said it, my get goosebumps when I think about it, because it was a, such a unique event not only because of the two of them, but because of the atmosphere in the garden that night. And it was Thanksgiving, and it was New York, and everybody was up for it. And then to see these two legendary characters, one at the very top of his game, touring, and the other, this legendary 
figure from the Beatles, you know, and it was just an amazing event, never to be forgotten. And Elton always says it's his concert he remembers the most. And for me, in all the experiences I've had, it's probably the, the most fabulous experience. And you take us through that journey with Elton. You knew him as Reg in those early days. And a real neat way into that period was when you worked um, for George Martin, but you had your office at Dick James Music. So then you've got that great combination. You've got the Dick James element. You've got the very, very early formative years of Elton John. And then you've got the Beatle link there as well. Yeah, and also the um, the thing about Dick James' music was it was very the other side of British showbiz, if you like, kind of Jewish music publisher type things. You know, and there were a lot around at the time. There were a lot of, and and I knew a lot of the publishers, and so working in Dick's office was traditional music business as it was at the time before it moved on. So meeting Elton in those circumstances, it was just of its time, you know. I, I'm glad that we met then and there at that particular moment with Dick and in, in Dick's office, you know, because it was a lot, lot, lot of British old traditional showbiz feeling about it. And you take us behind the scenes before that legendary show at Madison Square Garden where you flew with John Lennon and sat with him to watch Elton John perform live a week or so before that concert as well. Yeah, we went to Boston. Because once John had agreed to do it, Elton said to me, you know, John had better come and take a look at the show because I don't know whether he's aware of what he's letting himself in for. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I would like to do that. So we flew up with Elton on the on the stars, Starship to Boston and we watched the show and we sat behind the stage at the back, the seats behind the stage, looking down on the stage. And, El and John said to me in the middle of it, he said, oh, my God, is this it? So I said, yeah, this is it, John. And he said, the sound is unbelievable. He said, when we played Shea Stadium, we had these little amps. He said, we couldn't hear a thing. And uh, then, you know, and he saw all the backstage palaver and everything that was going on around Elton at the time. He said, this is kind of amazing. And then at the end of the show, Elton came running out and did a sort of little bow, you know, kind of a curtsy almost, because he had this <laughs> shorts with a bib, a heart-shaped bib on the top. And John looked at me and he started laughing. We were both laughing. And then we flew back to New York with him. We rehearsed in New York because John then realized that the seriousness of it, well, he knew anyway, he was a pro. But once he'd seen Elton's show, he knew that he had to step up a few notches from where he'd been before, you know, because this was going to be an occasion, although none of us knew just how big an occasion it was going to turn out to be. And it was John's idea, understand, to play I Saw Her Standing There, which was Paul McCartney's song, really. Yeah, well, Elton was saying, what do you, do you want to do? You want to do Imagine? You want to do... And he says, no, no, I don't want to do any of that. He said, let's... I'd like to do a, a song, one of Paul's songs. So we all looked at him like surprise, and we said, yeah. And he said, yeah, let's do I saw her standing there. And we said, fine, OK. And then we were into it, and it, it rattled it off in no time flat, because Elton works fast. Elton is a very, very quick worker, and John is fast, too. 
So the pair of them together were like boom, boom, boom. It was a bit like Freddie Mercury and Elton. You know, they were both two fast people together. Funny enough, Elton's been in the studio this week. He, he played on a Stones track on the new on the next Stones album. I saw Mick last night because I went to his Christmas do for an hour because it was so many people. It was a nightmare. But I I said to him, Elton said you were very. Uh, Elton said you were Im- impressed with how fast he worked. And Mick said, yeah, he works really fast, doesn't he? I said, yes, he does. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you one final thing about that Madison Square. And there's that amazing moment backstage where John, I mean, ultimately reconciles with Yoko Ono. Yeah. Well, Yoko had called me before the show and she says, I want to come to the show, but I don't want John to see me. So I got her a seat 11 rows back. So she was close enough to see him, but he, with his, without his, his very short sighted, wouldn't see her. And backstage after the, just before the show started, she sent these gardenias in a dish, beautiful dish, very Yoko, very classy, you know, gardenias. And, and Elton said, oh, Yoko sent these. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, I couldn't go on if I knew she was here. And Elton looked at me and his eyes got wider. And I, <laughs> I looked back and as though to say, oh, <laughs> say nothing. Anyway, after the show, of course, I went to get her and brought her back. And I took her into the dressing room and he looked at her and he said, I didn't know you were here. And he said to me, did you know this? And I said, well, of course I knew. And um, that was it. There was a kind of moment. There's a lovely Kevin Mazur photograph of them in the dressing room. And you can't see John's expression, but you can see her expression and the way she's looking at him. And you just know that that was the moment where they probably clicked again and thought, okay, we're going to go back together, not straight away. I think it was another couple of months, but um, yeah, it was a, it was a, a kind of moment. It really was. And then after the vivid depiction of Madison Square Garden, we're taken back into your early years. And for me, it's really interesting looking at that moment where you you leave Eastbourne, <laughs> you're so young, yeah, and you get a job at Decca, and then relatively swiftly. Even at a very early age, you you start rising through the ranks. Uh, it's just remarkable how you could just go from Eastbourne on the coast to the middle of London in, in the record industry. And I guess as a teenager, loving rock and roll, Elvis, that kind of thing, it must have just been an incredible period for you. Well, it was, uh, I mean, the year before that, I was at Eastbourne Grammar School, you know, and then a year later, I'm at Decca Records. and. Uh, and six months into the job, I got promoted to be assistant label manager for London American Records, which was the label at the time. London American was the label we all worshipped because there was so much good stuff on it. And I was assistant label manager with Jeff Milner, who's the label manager. And I was, again, I hadn't turned 17 and I was still doing, and then I was making up EPs, you know, because I was... I was such an enthusiast, and everybody in Decca knew there was this bright kid who was running around the building who was like, blah, 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 chatting everybody up, mad keen on pop music. And so when I started, when I was working for Jeff, I said, let me make up some EPs of, with people. I did Fats Domino, Levity Brothers, Little Richard. And of course, I picked all the best songs because I knew the best songs. You kidding? I was living them. I call. I knew Lucille. I knew Walking to New Orleans. 
I knew I'm in love again. Uh, you know, I knew the girl can't help it. Bye-bye, love. And, of course, it was my vocabulary at the time. But it was thrilling to be doing that. And I guess it's more thrilling to think back on it than it was. At the time, I just took it for granted in a funny kind of way. I love the way that you describe some of the music that you were involved in at the time and where you were able to hear a track like Love Letters, Ketty Lester, believing it, recognise how wonderful that track is, and then really advocate it and promote it here in the UK. Yeah, and she had that wonderful pianist, Lincoln Mayorga, who was a classical pianist, and he played the piano, and he also did stuff with the Piltdown men and also the four preps, big man. Yeah, I was a big man yesterday. He played the piano on that. And half the success of that song was that gorgeous piano as well. And she had the most beautiful voice, and she was beautiful to look at. I put her in a picture on the cover of the book. She was a gorgeous person. She was a lovely person. She had the most... And that album is still one of my favourite albums, that Love Letters album. There's so many great songs in it, Strange Fruit, the Billie Holiday song. She does a beautiful version of that. I sort of knew it. As soon as I heard that record, I thought, I really want to promote this record because it had everything going for it. It was classy, and she was a classy dame as well, very classy. And I shouldn't even say dame. I should say lady because she was a lady. She wasn't a dame. Lincoln was, I told Elton about him years later, and Elton said, oh, my God, he's played on all those records. And Elton went and found him and called him up. Wow. Yeah, he, found, he called Lincoln Mayoga up, and he said, my friend Tony King was telling me that you played long, long love letters. And he said, yes, he said, I bumped into Tony in, in London a, a few months ago in Wigmore Street, and he said it made my day seeing him again. And uh, Elton said, well, I'm, I'm just such, I'm so in awe of your keyboard playing anyway. So there you go. It was a nice, it was a nice record to work on because she was a lovely person and he, and she traveled and he came with her and they traveled everywhere together as a duo. So whenever I did Thank You Lucky Stars or any of those TV shows that we were doing, Lincoln was always there too. Very sweet man. And they were very sweet people to be with you know like lovely lovely warm people i was very lucky with that love letter straight from your heart Keep us so near while apart I'm not alone in the night When I can have all the love you And I kiss the name that you sign 
So, huge American acts coming over from the States and you were responsible for accompanying them wherever they were and assisting them. And the names are incredible. You've got the Ronettes, you've got Roy Orbison. Crystals, Johnny Tillotson, Dale Shannon, Little Eva. Oh, I could go on and on. You know, there was quite a few. And I, and the funny thing was, you know, there I am. Now I'm at Tony Hall's office, moved on from London American Records, and I'm now working for Tony Hall, and I'm 19, but I'm still young. And so all of a sudden, it's like, oh, Tony Hall, I want you to go to the airport tomorrow and pick up Brenda Lee and take her to the, her hotel, which is the Stratford Court, which was opposite Bond Street Station. I forget what it's called now. It's got another name. It's still there. So there I am, this 19-year-old at London Airport, meeting Brenda Lee, who has had several number ones in America and was a big star, you know. I'm Sorry and all her big hits, you know, Break It To Me Gently. Great singer. Oh, what a voice that woman has. She's still around. She shows up at Elton shows once in a while. And then, of course, the Ronettes was something else, you know, going to the airport. And I was late at the airport. The taxi was late. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I hope I, I hope I can find them. Then I saw them all sitting on this bench with their legs all going in the same direction, the way that women sit with the legs going to the side and the hair up to here. <laughs> and I thought, there they are, the Ronettes. <laughs> anyway, they, they were fun. And Phil Spector, of course, dealt with Phil, who could be very trying, but at the same time, very amusing. It could be very trying. Hey, Tony, I'm in Phoenix, and I've just spent a lot of money. Can you get Decker to pay for it out of there, my royalties? I said, hold on, Phil. So I called Bill Townsley's office at Decker. I said to Anne, his secretary, who was great, I said, Anne, I've got Phil Spectre in Phoenix spending loads of money asking us to pay the bill. She said, don't worry, leave it to me. I'll deal with it. And the bill got paid. <laughs> And we, through this period, even though you weren't necessarily directly involved with them, the early period of the Beatles, say, 62, 63 to 65, your paths kept weaving in and out with them, even with the Ronettes. I think uh, George Harrison was dating Estelle. Yeah, well, I first met the Beatles at a broadcast called Pop In with Keith Bordice. They were in town to plug Please Please Me. And I just talked to them straight away because we liked the same music and we were swapping notes. I said, oh, have you heard 
if you've got to make a fool of somebody, you know, the American version, they said, oh, yeah, we love it. And then Lipstick Traces by Benny Spellman and all these, we were swapping songs backwards and forwards. And George said, oh, you know, you like the same stuff as us. And I said, yeah. I said, my friend Ronnie Bella is the promotion man for Motown. They're out in Oriole. I said, I can get you stuff when it comes out. And they said, yeah. So I used to get them records and everything. When they became started to become big, they used to do Saturday Club recordings down at the Playhouse Theatre on the on the embankment. And my friend who produced it was Bernie Andrews, and he'd say to me, "I've got the Beatles coming in on Thursday. Do you want to pop down?" So I'd say, "Yeah." So I'd go down and I'd sit in the Playhouse Theatre by myself watching the Beatles record, sing four songs for Saturday Club, you know, like. And we'd have chats in between, you know, and a cup of tea and a gossip and everything. And it was just, it was amazing because I'm I'm sitting there with the Beatles, watching the Beatles sing, and no one else in the theatre except me and maybe maybe one or two other people I don't even remember, but I remember it being pretty empty. But I used to see them around town quite a lot. And we just became friends. I became friends with George straight away, mainly. And later on, Ringo, and then much later on, John. Yeah, a lot of history with them. And then around 1965, you started working with Andrew Blue Goldham, is that right? Yeah, I think it might have been, yeah, 64, 65, yeah. Andrew had asked me to work for him before, and I just thought, well, you know, he's 18 years old, and he's got this band, and is he really... I mean, I know I've got this secure job at Decker, and... I said, no, thank you. And then he called me in again and he called me over and he said, do you want to come? I'd like to meet with you again. So we met and then he played me the acetate of satisfaction. Oh, my God. I just thought, what is that? I said to Andrew, that's an amazing record. I said, that is going to be such a gigantic hit. And I remember I went back to all my friends in Eastbourne at the weekend and I said, you should hear the Rolling Stones record. It's mind-blowing. It's so fantastic. And I was trying to tell them about it. It's got this guitar figure in it that's so fantastic and the lyrics and everything. I said, it's going to be it's going to be a huge record. So, yeah, I, I decided to go with Andrew because also Andrew had grown in stature by that time and was yeah. much more seriously regarded you know he wasn't just this 18 year old kid who was doing publicity for mark winter and then the beatles he was in his early days he was mark winter's publicist and then he did beatles publicity for brian epstein before he signed the stones and even when he signed the stones they weren't that that big originally their their climb was smaller than the beatles they didn't take off they did it in increments but when Satisfaction came along, I knew that was it. That was the one that was going to set their career on fire. And I wanted to be a part of it. And a friendship with Charlie Watts as well? Yes. Well, Charlie had a flat on the same floor as the office. And um, one day I came in and Camilla, I think it was, the girl who was working for her at the time, said, oh, no, I found this cat in the corridor. And she was crying and I knew she was in pain and I picked her up gently and I took her into the office and I laid her down and Andrew came in and I said, oh, I, I'm such an animal lover. I said to Andrew, oh, I found this little cat and it's it's injured. And he said, oh, my God, that's that's Charlie's cat. They're away in America. See what you can do. So I took it to the vet around the corner 
We were in Ivor Court at that time, just off Baker Street. And the vet said, no, it's not much I can do. I'm going to have to put her down. And I said, isn't that anything that... He said, well, there is a vet on the other side of town who does miracles. You can try him, Mr. Butt, across the road. I think he's still operating. But anyway, I took her to Mr. Butt. And he said, yeah, I can put her together. He said, I'll have to do rebuild the leg like a jigsaw puzzle. I'll have to rebuild it. Charlie and Shirley came back from America. And I had to go and knock on the door and say, I'm Tony King. And I'm the guy who took your cat to the vet and you owe me 25 quid. <laughs> and they coughed up the 25 quid. And I said, can I see Louise? And they said, yeah. And, um, she had a plaster on and they had wooden floors and she was clunking around on the wooden floors. And I stayed and had a chat with them. And then I I would go back periodically to see Louise because I grew very fond of her. And Charlie thought <laughs> Charlie thought I was the gayest person he'd ever met <laughs> at the time. I don't think I'm particularly as probably as not as gay now as I was then. I was think I was much more out. But anyway, uh, we became friends. And they moved to Lewis, and my, my mum lived in Eastbourne, and I used to go down at weekends, and I used to go and stay with them on Saturday night in Lewis, and we used to smoke dope and listen to Motown records. <laughs> Following that, a few years later, you started working with George Martin and, and Air. Yeah, well, I was working with Andrew, and of course, working with Andrew was not always easy, because Andrew was up and down, and there was a lot of drug taking going on, and people were getting wasted and tired and everything and Andrew went up and down up and down and I it just became difficult and then uh Peter Sullivan one of the people at air called me in for an interview to talk to me and would you be interested in joining us and he introduced me to John Burgess and Ron Richards and George Martin and I thought well this sounds like a seems like a very professional outfit and so I joined but they couldn't keep me in their office in Baker Street. They didn't have room. It was right opposite the Beatles' Apple office that got painted by Simon and Mar Marika, the Dutch group people who... Oh, the fool. Yeah, uh, you know, the fool. Yeah, they painted the building, and it was just opposite Ayers' building. But they didn't have room for me. So well, they had a publishing deal with Graham Nash's publishing company called Grotto. And they said, well, Dick will give you an office down at Dick James Music. So that's how I ended up at Dick James Music, by being an offshoot of air, you know, published, the publishing company, Grotto, went through Dick James, which was the Collis publishing. And I ended up with George and Ron Richards, who I adored, who was the one who really gave Elton the break when uh, I knew Elton as Reg, because I used to see him in Dick James' office, and he was just this nice little stocky kind of guy but he was such an interesting guy to talk to you know he was he loved music and he was and he and he was very impressed with me because he knew I knew the Beatles he knew I'd work for the Stones so I was like whoa you know <laughs> this giant this guy who knows everybody yeah you know air led on to lots of good things because when I was working there I met um, Elton of course so these are all the jigsaw pieces that created the Bread and Beer Band, wasn't it? The short-lived Elton 
projects. I think they've released one single, uh, Dick Barton theme, I, I think. Yeah. But you're down as producer for that record, aren't you? And then they released another one on Pi. Right. Um, and they gave it a, another group name, and it was Mellow Yellow. And I've forgotten the name of the Something's Foot, I think it was called. It was Something Foot. But anyway, it was me- Mellow Yellow and maybe in the letter on the B-side, give me a ticket for an aeroplane. But, um, yeah, we, we did Bread and Beer Band with Bernie Calvert, the Hollies, Roger Pope, who later on played with Elton for quite a few years. And we, we used to do these sessions down at Abbey Road, and then we'd all go around the pub and uh, drink Final Selection. And, of course, one of the tracks on the record was name final selection <laughs> it pissed on final selection and then of course it was chris thomas who was training to be a producer right. in george's office uh, chris and i shared an office when air air subsequently moved to park street so i left dick james and i went to i had an office in park street and uh, i shared it with chris thomas and of course we did the bread and beer band together chris and i you know and then called chris went on to become a legendary producer and I went on to become a (laughs) whatever I became. went on to become head of A&R for Apple Records. Yes. Was that at the period when they had that advert, come and audition, send your music in? Yeah, and the, and the lorry on the switchboard who had that wonderful voice, Apple Records, Apple Records. She used to work for, Dick, she used to work for Brian Epstein. She always had the sexy voice. And um, 
she lost her voice after two days and we got inundated with people. It was like ridiculous. I I think it came out. I don't know whether it was an ad. My thing, I, that, there might have been an advert before, but the one that I created was David Wig writing in the Daily Express that I was seeing people. And then people started pouring into the building and I had to see all these really eccentric people like you see in the book and when the guy came and said he was God and then the next day a Frenchman arrived and said he was Jesus. And I said, oh, I had your dad in yesterday. <laughs> Couldn't resist it. But, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of mad. Alan Klein gave me that title. Alan liked me because he knew that I was hardworking and I was sensible. And uh, and I, I got them to sign Lon and Derek Van Eaton and they made that lovely Lon and Derek Van Eaton album of Warm Woman and Sweet Music and a really nice album. And Lon and Derek became quite popular and they played on a lot of Beatles stuff as well. You asked Alan Klein a year or two later that you, you wanted to base yourself in the US, didn't you? I didn't want to base myself there. No, I wanted to go there. Right. And I said to Alan, I would love to go to America. And he said, why? I said, Alan, my whole work experience my whole life experience has been built around american music i love american music i worship at the shrine of american music and alan said well that's a good enough reason he said george and ringo are going to new york to get an award for bangladesh why don't you keep them company and make sure everything's all right so i did i i flew out with ringo to new york and that was my first trip to america and it was cool a real eye-opener, you know. Oh, my God, this is like a whole other thing, isn't it? And even as a gay man, I noticed, you know, that New York was much more, it was much more cruisy. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone was picking everybody up, but but, uh, I loved it. And I thought, oh, no, I want to live in America now. There's an incredible moment. I don't know if this is a a bit later, when you went over to the States on the boat with Elton John. Following year. Yeah. Following year, we went on the SS France. But Julian and his mum, Cynthia, were were actually on the same. Well, John asked me to bring, because by this time I'd been working for John in America doing all his stuff for mind games and starting and John had said he wanted me to work in America for him and I got been through all the hoops to get the work visa and I eventually got it. And so my I was going to live in America and Elton said to me, We're all going to on the SS France. I'm going out with the band on the SS France. Do you want to come with? So I said, Yeah, I love it. So Elton and I had a suite together because Elton and I were, by this time, we were like so close. We were like brothers. We spent all our time together. I think a lot of people, people who didn't know us thought that maybe we were boyfriends or something. We weren't. And we were just like best chums. So he said, you want to come on the boat? So I said, yeah. So I said, oh, it's going to be fabulous. It's going to be like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, isn't it? It's going to be like all glam and everything. And I was getting on thinking, oh, yeah, here we go. And we got on the boat and it was this sort of Jeep, 50s furniture, and it was all weighted down, you know, there was a vase and you went and pick up a vase or the flowers. It was all magnetized and weighted to, so it didn't tip over. But it was fun all the same. We played squash every day. We did bingo. We went to the horrible cabaret. We, we made the best of it, you know. We, we had a good laugh, actually. Because Elton also, on that trip, wrote, 80, 90% of um, Captain Fantastic. 
and didn't have a tape machine. So he had to memorize it? He memorized it. Wow. When we got to New York, got to America, he got a studio and put the songs down. But he, we didn't have anything on the boat with us. Didn't have a tape machine. We didn't have any way of recording. So he would write a song. I'd, I'd go out cruising around the boat, seeing what was going on, because he would go and write for two hours. And we, we shared the space with this opera singer. And he would go off and write. And then I'd come back for lunch and I'd say how'd you get on this morning so I wrote another one and he'd sing it to me and he'd sing me another song from Captain Fantastic and then I'd go off the next day and I'd come back another song and before I in fact before we left England I went down to his house for the weekend and I went down to the bedroom to do something and he was tinkering away at the piano and I was down fiddling around sorting out my bags whatever I came back and he said oh I've just written another song so I said Oh, do you want to play it to me? So he said, yes. I, it was We All Fall In Love Sometimes. And he wrote it in fucking 20 minutes, I'm telling you. Wow. 20 minutes it took him to write that song. Did he have a stash of Bernie's lyrics with him? And then is that how it well, worked? He had lyrics, you know, like typed up lyric on play four type, typed up. And Bernie would just send them in and he would have a wad of them. And he would pick out ones that he liked the pick out lyrics and he'd think, oh, I like this one, I like this lyric, I'll, I'll try this one, you know, and then he'd churn out all these great songs all the time, you know, and he's such a great keyboard player. He's such a great musician and he got very influenced by lots of... I remember in the early days he liked David Ackles. That was his favourite. Yeah. He loved, And Jackson Brown. He liked David Ackles and Jackson Brown. They were his two hot writers. Men say it looks like rain today. It crackled on the speakers and trickled down the sleepy subway trains. For heavy eyes could hardly hold us, aching legs that often told us it's all worth it. We are falling. Sometimes The full moon's bright And starlight filled the evening We wrote it and I played it Something happened It's so strange this feeling That were childish Simple tunes that tried to hide it But when it comes We all fall in love sometimes Did we, didn't we, should we
mentioned mind games earlier and you've got to tell me about that incredible advert for mind games where you dressed up as the queen and how that came about well i was staying in holy at the time when i was working with john doing stuff with mind games i was staying in in a flat belonging to a friend of mine called mike hazelwood yeah who was part of hammond hazelwood who wrote another race in southern california yeah. and little arrows for lee p lee Air that I breathe for the Hollies. So I was staying with Mike, and Mike and I got a bit stoned one night. We smoked a joint, and I was sending it up with, with mind games. I, I did this send up cod version with, with the Queen's voice advertising it, and Mike and I were laughing about it. I said, Let's play it to John tomorrow when we pick him up because we were, were going out to do something. We had the tape machine, we put it in the back seat of the car, and when we were driving down Sunset Boulevard, I pressed start and it out came my voice as the queen and john was hysterical he thought it was fantastic he laughed his head off and that was it next day i get a phone call at the office you know that thing you did with the queen so i said yeah well, of course i know he said i want you to do a tv commercial now with that and so then i had to go to capital and i had a wonderful friend called dennis colleen and a guy called Var, uh, forgotten Var's surname. They pulled it all together, sent me down to Western Costume to get the Queen's outfit together and the crown and everything. And then we, I hired a studio, and the next thing I know, I'm shooting a TV commercial for John Lennon dresses the Queen of England. And then Elton, who was big, had become monstrously big, was calling me, as he did all the time, to see how I was getting on, and he said, what are you up to today? I said, Oh, I'm doing a John I'm doing a John Lennon commercial dressed as the Queen. He said, I beg your pardon. I said, Yeah. I said, I'm doing a commercial and dressed as the Queen. He said, Are you really? I said, Yeah. I said, Do you want to come? I said, You can meet John. I think you'd like so I he said, Yeah. So I told John, I said, Elton John's coming down today because he wants to see what's going on. Do you mind? And John said, No, I'd like to meet him. And that's how they met. Elton wow. up. I introduce. I'm dressed. I've got full makeup on as the Queen and a crown and a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. I hadn't got into my dress yet, but I was still like <laughs> half the Queen. I'm saying, "Oh, John, this is Elton. Elton, this is John." And I introduced them dressed the half dress as the Queen. <laughs> and then we did the commercial. And if you look online, you can see it on. You know, they, they run the footage and you can see Elton in the background. Elton was taking Polaroids. And that was the beginning of their friendship. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Her Royal Highness, the Queen. Good evening. I have been asked to do this commercial. It relates to a gramophone record <laughs> called Mind Games by John Lennon. So keep on playing those mind games together. And it's impossible to go through every twist and turn over the next decade. And obviously, all I can say is get the taste maker. Covering your work at Rocket Records, that amazing time that you helped break Cliff Richard in the US, RCA and, and, and Disco, just some of the things that people will have to get the tastemaker for. By the mid-80s, you were back working this time with uh, Mick Jagger, weren't you? So how, how did that come about? Oh, Mick, well, I was at RCA at the time. I knew Mick had a solo album. And I knew he didn't have anybody to do all the pieces for it. And I'd already done Ringo and John. And I knew what that was like, pulling all the elements together. So I kind of proposed that I do the job. And Mick said, well, aren't you happy at, uh, where you are? Because he knew I was at RCA because we'd had dinner with Charlie. Whenever Charlie came into town, we'd see each other. And nine times out of ten, Mick would come along. So he knew I was at RCA. And I said, well... It's okay, Mick, I said, but it's a very corporate environment and it's not some somewhere I'm totally comfortable with. And he said, well, he gave me a six-month trial. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll take six-month trial. Anyway, I did a good, good job. And I remember Shirley Watts said to me, oh, I was talking to Mick about you the other day. And I said, yeah, and what did he ever say? She said, he said, you're very efficient. <laughs> anyway, after six months, I said to Mick, it's six months, Mick. And he goes, already? And I said, yeah. I said, so what are we going to do? He said, well, you better stay on then. So that was it. I stayed on for the next 20 odd years. First off working with him as a solo artist and then rejoining him with the Rolling Stones. When, well, first off, we made one very controversial album where everybody was not getting along. Dirty work. It was like pulling teeth doing that. Mick was promoting his solo record at the same time as he was making tracks for Dirty Work in Paris. And there was a very bad atmosphere. And Keith, Keith went for me and he said to me, why, what are you doing working with him for? Why are you working with him? And I said, well, Keith, it's a job. I said, and for me, it's a job. I'm not thinking about the politics of it. For me, it's a job and it's something that I'm, I can do. That's why I'm doing it, because it's a good job and I've been offered it. And so I'm not going to get in the way of you and him and whatever have going on between you. But in my heart, I always believed that Mick would go back with the Stones. I always felt that. I knew that this solo career thing was going to last for as long as it lasted. And then he was going to drift because the money would lure them back. And Prince Rupert, who was, did their deals, obviously came up with a wonderful deal for them to tour again properly, you know. When, once everybody had cleaned up their act somewhat, you know, because everyone, during Dirty Work, it was a bit messy. You know, Charlie was on heroin and no one was in very good shape. So but by the time we came around to Steel Wheels, everybody was much better off and the album was better and the energy was better. And we had mentioned, but Peter mentioned Kurt Bernstein doing the management side. So we, it was much more than David Michael Cole doing the touring side, and then off we went. Live Aid and, and Mick Jagger, you got the call from Tommy Mottola 
asking if Mick would want Hall and Oates as his backing band. That, that's that's incredible as well. That's true. Well, I knew Tommy anyway from uh, RCA days because I was there and there was Daryl and John and also just generally as a character. And he had um, a singer called Corey Day who was with the Savannah band, you know, that did Cherche La Bum. And uh, so I knew Tommy and he, he called me up and he said, it's Mick looking for someone to play with him for Live Aid. And I said, well, yeah, we are going to be looking. He said, well, Daryl and John would love to do it. So I went to Mick and I said, do you want to consider this? And he said, yeah. And then there was, I've forgotten his name. They have a wonderful guitarist they had at the time. And I've forgotten his name. And we did it. And then we got, we had the Temptations doing backup vocals on Miss You. And then we did it with, with Tina. And we had to go and rehearse the ripping off the skirt. <laughs> Tina insisted. She said, I'm not going to do this unless you come and rehearse. And we had to imagine we were stuck in a hotel room and I'm, watching Mick Jagger rip off Tina Turner's skirt and trying to orchestrate it so it was done perfectly because she was super professional. It's only rock and roll. That was one of the tracks that he did with Tina and a great moment and what a band. Well, it was the best best of the American side, I think, the mixed thing. Live Aid was much better in England. The staging was better. The performances were better. The whole thing in England was much classier. America looked, it looked a bit tacky, I thought. But Mick did well. Mick did great. He came out on top. He got the applause from the critics. So, and it was great. And then the next day, of course, he said, we're going to Los Angeles. And he said, oh, I'm, we're going on the MGM Grand private plane. So I said, oh, great. And we went on this private plane. There were a few other people on the plane, but there was a bar and all this scene, you know. And Mick said, oh, well, let's go and have a look and see what it's all like. So we did. And then when we get there, he said, well, I'm going for dinner with Jack Nicholson. Do you want to come? So I said, yeah, well, I knew Jack from when I lived in L.A. through Betsy Asher and Peter Asher because they were great friends with Jack. And so we went up and and, uh, we were talking. And I was so tired from the night before because I hadn't had any sleep. And I laid down and I went, I passed out. I actually passed out. And then all of a sudden I woke up, I don't know, half an hour later and they were still talking. I sat up and Jack Nicholson said to me, well, I'm sorry we were so interesting. (laughs) I said, oh, Jack, I'm just tired, I'm just exhausted. Because, you know, I I mean, obviously to organise Mick for Live Aid was quite an undertaking, you know. Yeah. He's Mick Jagger, for Christ's sake. You, you you want to do it right. I'm just thinking if I can do this. There they are. Oh, wow. That's Mick and Tina. Yeah. And that's signed by both of them. Amazing. Yeah, that's an amazing... That is a fantastic I, I shot. I recognised that photo. I was taken backstage just before they went on stage because they came to me and said, oh, we want to do a photo of Mick for Life, Life magazine. And I said... Well, he's just about to go on. So I went into Mick and I said, they want to do a photo of you and Tina for life. And he said, well, we're about to go on. Go and get Tina and grab her and just we'll do it quick. So he grabbed Tina and took that picture. One take. Iconic. The the photographer said to them, okay, give it to me. And they just went, bang. And there's the photo. And he ended up on the cover of Life magazine. Not only working with the Stones in the last 20, 30 years. Elton as well. Yeah. Maybe it's just to close, just a reflection on a remarkable life, 
captured in the tastemaker stories packed into it with so many we didn't even cover the time they helped Roy Orbison get his Mercedes <laughs> just so many many stories with Las Elton Las Vegas and Elton this last tour and all the stuff to do with that it's it's, it's ongoing <laughs> Yeah, so Tony, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Good. All right. Thanks a lot. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Where's Tina?
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.